0: Okay, I want you to imagine you're sitting in a room. You've volunteered to fill out a simple survey for your college or your job, and at one point, as you sit there, pencil scratching away, you notice there's a thick smoke coming in from under the door. You look around at the other people who are in the room with you. Those who notice it just shrug and go back to their surveys. The smoke continues to billow in. What do you do? Hi, by the way, I'm Izzy, and welcome to Politics Etc., the show where you and I try to navigate the ins and outs of our world's political systems by looking at them through every possible lens, from modern literature to true crime. Each week, I'm going to start you off with a story, and you and I will use it to get a better understanding of a concept that, on its own, might seem daunting. So, if you like politics, then sit down and take a listen. And if you're interested in psychology, the limits of human rationality, and the story of a fiery revolt that started a chain reaction like no other, you might want to tune in today. Back to our story. You're in that room, all these thick, scary clouds of smoke coming in. What do you do? This was what researchers Darley and Latane wanted to find out back in 1968, when they piloted this as a psychology experiment. I think most of us would say that we'd go and get help. And the research found that that would be the case for the majority of people sitting alone in that room. 75% of them, actually they went and got help within the first couple minutes of seeing the smoke. However, something strange happens when they added a few other people to the study. Actors who were instructed to act totally unbothered by the very visible threat. In that case, only 10% of people get up and leave the room looking for help. The subjects of this study actually sat there in a cloud of smoke, rubbing their eyes and waving smoke away from the page so they could continue their survey. This is what psychologists like to call the bystander effect. When humans are grouped together in situations like this one, we get a little weird about what we will and won't do. We won't even report something that could, worst case scenario, kill us, because we're scared of... Standing out or facing judgment or looking like the guy who's scared of smoke in front of these other people who obviously don't care It's easy to think about as simple economics problem actually The marginal benefit of getting up to check out the fake smoke Which I will remind you could have been warning of a very real fire is outweighed by the marginal cost of being that guy It seems totally counterintuitive, but it happens. Countless studies, like this one, have proven it. So, how does this fit into politics? Well, the bystander effect is actually a huge collective action problem. And collective action is basically when a group of people gets together to further a common goal. Generally speaking, this is good, politically. When people mobilize around an issue, the idea is that their voices will be heard and the issues that they care about will get integrated into the legislature or the laws governing that region. This group of people benefits, so they're happier. The government is happier because they don't have to deal with unhappy people. It's a good thing. In a perfect world, this would be the way things are all the time. In the real world, It's hard to get the government to act on behalf of small or large groups, and sometimes even harder to get people to rally in the first place. And this is due to the bystander effect. The general consensus is that it's a lot of work to be the person who acts first, so I'm not gonna be the one to do it. And the bigger that the groups become, the harder it is to get the individuals within that group to act, partly due to the perception that the group is now so big that somebody else has to take up the mantle instead of me. So let's consider a real-world example. In America, the way in which the largest amount of people do something politically is through voting. This is subject to the same flaws as any other collective action. The answer to why a number of people choose not to vote every year is in the same simple cost-benefit equation that we used before. Anthony Downs, an economist, actually made a little formula explaining just this. It's the probability that your vote will make a difference, multiplied by the benefits you will receive by voting, minus the cost incurred by voting. However you measure that, I don't know. But moving on. Because the probability of your vote significantly counting is so small, the answer to this formula almost always comes out negative. And negative means that it's an irrational action, according to Downs. So, while the number of eligible voters who vote hovers around 40 to 60 percent, those who don't are just doing what's rational to them. We're back to the smoke-filled room. Any kind of action is stopped in its tracks by this problem of rationality. So how do we break this mold? What will it take? To answer this, I want to tell you the story of a guy named Mohammed living in Tunisia, a small country in northern Africa. But first, some background info. It's 2011, Mohammed is 26, and the Prime Minister, Zine al Abidine Ben Ali, I am probably butchering that, has been in power for 24 years. When Ben Ali seized power back in 1987, he promised to dramatically transition the nation toward democracy. This kind of promise, while it sounds really good, is made often by new leaders in countries that have been long plagued with corrupt and authoritarian rule. And almost just as often, they don't exactly work out as promised. In the next two elections, for example, Ben Ali ran unopposed. Every election after that, he won with a sweeping majority. When the Constitution then threatened to get in the way of his dream of unlimited years of leadership, he had it changed. Twice. And while under Ben Ali, the economy in Tunisia saw some significant growth, Things weren't so great for the people in terms of political freedoms. The control over the media was getting tighter by the day, and opposition of any kind towards the government's rules and regulations was not tolerated, even when what was being opposed was unlawful itself. Okay, now that you're caught up, back to Mohammed. At the time, he was working to support his family by running a little fruit stand, Every morning, he would set up his stand next to a row of others in a central location in his town. And just as reliably, the police would show up and start confiscating stuff from these sellers. Now, I couldn't find anything about whether there was some sort of law against selling goods in a public place, but I'm going to guess that there wasn't, or at the very least, that it was exaggerated to the benefit of the cops on duty. I say this because in order to get your stuff back... Vendors in Tunisia had to pay off the officers with hefty bribes. On this day, Mohammed was unable to do so. The police officer swore at him, slapped him in the face, and spit on him. Understandably upset, he storms over to a local government building to make a complaint. And no one will listen. It's like no one cares at all. I can't even imagine how this must have felt, your livelihood taken away from you in a matter of minutes, and the people who are supposed to help you, unable or unwilling to do so. In a way, I guess, he sees that smoke filling the room. It's creeping in from under the door, and he's trapped. It's dangerous and threatening to cause real harm if left unchecked. Except, unlike the people in that study, he doesn't stay silent. Right there, on the street, in front of the municipal building, Mohamed Bouazizi douses himself in fuel and sets himself on fire. I can imagine that this is a horrifying, shocking sight. He is rushed to the hospital where he later dies, but the shocked and horrified people do not forget him. He is now remembered as the martyr who started the Jasmine Revolution in Tunisia, people who had faced the same disrespect as him took to the streets, outraged, demanding justice for him and for the working class all over the country. Side note, in a totally misguided attempt to quell the wave of revolts taking over his country, Prime Minister Ben Ali actually visits Mohammed in the hospital, where he lays unconscious and dying from his attempt to escape the corrupt nation Ben Ali has created. The press comes. There's pictures of it. It's pretty horrible, but Ben Ali, despite this incredibly superficial visit and other empty promises made as a desperate attempt to rally support, is ousted from office. As news of this revolution passes through the area, it causes a frenzy throughout the Middle East. In Libya, Egypt, Syria, Morocco, people stood against their own governments, calling for democracy at great personal risk heartened by the news of success from Tunisia, and strengthened in their causes by the memory of young Mohammed. This crazy snowball effect, I think, shows how important it is that we all try, whenever possible, to not fall prey to the bystander effect. It just took one action, one instance, of going against that rationality equation and saying enough to start a revolution. It seems almost like the region was holding its breath, waiting for that first domino to fall and hit another and another and another. But I think it's equally important we remember that Buzizi's actions were not those of a revolutionary. They were those of a broken and desperate young man pushed to the very limit by a country that did not respect nor protect him. He might not have even felt like he had a choice anymore, to act or not to act, It seems like, no matter the action, be it voting or rallying around an issue or standing up to check out some smoke, we're going to do nothing for as long as we can until we reach the point where we simply can't anymore. And it seems like sometimes I'm looking at you, smoke study, not even then. So how on earth do we bridge this gap, becoming willing to take action without being pushed to the breaking point, like Mohammed? Well, despite what I've just said, I am optimistic about human nature. Seeing the bravery of the thousands upon thousands of people who rallied behind Mohammed, people with a lot more to lose than being judged for checking out some smoke, makes me think that if they can do it, we all can. We might just need to remind ourselves of that every once in a while. Anyway, thank you for listening to my very first episode I've been wanting to start this for a long time, and I finally got some free time and a lot of cool stories that I can't wait to share with you guys, so I hope you stick around. I'm Izzy Taylor, and this is Politics Etc. I'll see you next time.